Our uh, sermon today is going to be based on scripture from Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 13. I think you've probably heard this one before, but I'll read it. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Good morning. Hopefully, oh, there it is. <clears throat> if we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Nick Walk. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline, specifically the Youth in College. And of course, as usual, I just wanted to start by sharing perhaps an interesting fact about myself that you may have not already known. If you couldn't tell already, I have actually quite the green thumb. I'm very good at taking care of plants. That is, as long as they fall under one of two categories. The first kind of plant that I've, I've found a lot of success with, it's a type of cactus, right? <laughs> if you've ever owned cactuses before, you'll know that they require very little to no watering in order to succeed. After all, the cactus is a type of plant that when soaking in too much water, will actually rot instead. You see, the cactus, it was not made to thrive in water, nor an overabundance of nutrients. It settled to take in as minimal nutrients as possible, even to produce beautiful flowers. But that's about it. And although cactuses are very near foolproof for me, the second type of plant, it's significantly easier. Right? How is that possible? It's a type of vine. It's called apothos. You see, the pothos, under the, on the one hand, it can soak in endless amounts of water. And what does it do with all that water, all that nutrients? Well, it just converts it into growth and growth and growth. And what makes this plant even easier is that it's able to grow immersed. That means you can grow the plant sticking its roots inside of water. Right? How can it get easier than that? I don't have to water it. I just leave it in the water. Why waste time watering a plant when it's already there? And now we can learn a lot from these two plants. You see, although both the cactus and the vine, they need water to survive, one's goal is merely survival, whereas the other's goal is to thrive. We must acknowledge there is a difference in the quality of life between a cactus and a pothos. Although the cactus is able to survive in minimal water, it's even able to produce flowers and very little. When introduced to an abundance of water, what happens? It rots. The cactus was simply not built to thrive in an abundance of water. Instead, right, it's the pothos. The pothos that truly thrives in this abundance of water. After all, the pothos, it's built different. But it's not just the pothos that's built different. What if I were to say that you and I, we are built different as well? Hopefully at this point you've realized that this, this story about these two plants, it's actually not about plants at all. It's about you, it's about me, and it's about our relationship with God. After all, whether you're joining us for the first time or you just need a little bit of a refresher, 
you've caught us in the middle of our Lenten series, specifically on our series on how to seek God. In other words, this year, it's all about getting to the heart of our relationship with God. And this morning, we've come to the practical and beneficial aspects of prayer, how it's so essential in our relationship with God. But let me hit perhaps the heart of the issue before we move forward. Why is prayer so essential? Why is prayer essential to have a thriving relationship with God, to seek God altogether? Well, it comes down to what we'll call communication. It's like talking to one of my love-struck college students about their crush, right? You see, one of my students, he'll go on and on about how this girl, she's so pretty, she's so perfect. He'll even share how he dreams and thinks about their future together. But there's one thing he will not do. It's to talk to her. Right? It's something that seems so obvious from our perspective, an outsider's perspective, right? It's so obvious. There's no relationship that doesn't begin or is sustained by communication. And yet in the midst of it, it's so easy to forget that simple and important truth. All of us, we can fall into that same delusion when it comes to our relationship with God. We were created to be in communion with God. You and I, we were created to soak and thrive in prayer like Pothos thrives in water. However, if we're honest with ourselves, how many of us have been living like cactuses when it comes to prayer? Just enough water in the weeks to survive. Some of us, we find time to soak in prayer once a week, perhaps on Sundays. Others amongst us, not even that. We call this a faith that is dry, yes, but it is alive, but it's certainly dry. But if you desire something better, something that's more than just survival, a faith that just goes beyond surviving, one that truly thrives in seeking God, perhaps you need a little CPR this morning. You need a little CPR for your spiritual life. And it's CPR that's exactly what we'll be attempting this morning as we go through our passage in three simple headings. After all, we'll see three ways that prayer breeds life into our spiritual lives. First, in verse 9, we'll see God's character. Second, in verse 10, we'll see God's plan. And third, in verses 11 through 13, we'll see our response. Again, we'll see how prayer breeds life into our spiritual life by breathing life into God's character, God's plan, and our response. Right? Character, plan, response, CPR. So let's dive into some CPR right now with C. How does prayer breathe life into God's character? Well, would you look with me to verse 9? Jesus tells his disciples, pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Oftentimes, as we pray, we neglect or skip past an important element of prayer. We forget acknowledging to whom we're praying. Just take a moment and think about how you begin your prayers or how you address God throughout your prayers. Although there may be a host of things you do say, usually it boils down to one of three typical things. We either say, dear God, dear Father, dear Lord. And we continue to address him as God or Father or Lord throughout our prayers. Oftentimes, the, 
these names, these titles, they become mere placeholders. It's not always that we think about this particular characteristic of God when we call him Father, God, or Lord in our prayers. But why is that the case? You see, when we scour the Old Testament prayers, the prayers often invoke a particular name of God depending on the particular needs of the one who prays. Sometimes they refer to God as El Olam, literally everlasting God. And it describes the steadfast nature of God's character. If things seem to be going wrong, and you need to know that God is stable, that God is faithful, you call out El Olam. Or other times they'll call God El Shaddai, Lord God Almighty, which describes the powerful nature of God's character. When you need to know for sure God is able, you call out El Shaddai. Or we see El Elyon, the God Most High, which describes this majestic, the grandness of God's character. If you feel yourselves beginning to doubt, if you feel like you need to be reminded how infinitely great your God is, our God is, you cry out, El, Elion. And how could we forget Adonai, Lord or Master, to call, or to call upon God by his revealed name, Yahweh, which is oftentimes the go-to name the people of God relate because they relate God according to his covenantal conditions, circumstances, or even consequences. They know God is covenantal. They know that God has given a covenant to his people. And in order to keep him to his word, in order to remind themselves that they have made a covenant as well, they cry out Yahweh. They remind themselves our God is a covenantal God. You see, the people of God, they've always called out different names for God depending on various circumstances. And now here in our passage, Jesus, he provides an even more revolutionary name, Father. Not to say that the Old Testament didn't ever talk about this father-son relationship when it came to God and his people. After all, the concept is scattered throughout the Old Testament. However, Jesus, he takes what is scattered, something that you would need to learn and research, and he molds it, and he presents it to us in the form of a common prayer. We pray, Father in heaven, heavenly Father, or just Father, it isn't a characteristic of God to be taken lightly. You see, the consequences of that affect not just how we pray or communicate with God, but how we relate to him, our relationship with God as a whole. You see, I remember... There was a dear brother of mine who shared about his labors in urban ministry. He would often share about this young woman who became a recent convert to Christianity. And you see, as he led his new converts or his seekers group, he began to notice something strange. He began to notice that whenever they started by reciting the Lord's Prayer, ended with the Lord's Prayer, she would just skip one word. She would omit the word, Father. And so as he got to know her, he asked her why. And as many of you might already have some sort of assumption or guess, you see, her father, he was a violent, he was an abusive, he was a cruel man. And so when she prayed the Lord's Prayer, she couldn't bring herself to call God something that would relate him to him. 
And you see, on the one hand, that sounds so right. It sounds like a way in which we safeguard God's honor, his identity. However, living like that, praying like that, it created a problem for both her faith and her prayers. You see, she not only struggled to call God Father, and of course, it's because of this marred understanding of what a father should be. More importantly, she struggled to believe that her heavenly father would truly love her enough to just listen to her prayers. After all, God loved her. Why? Because Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus died a perfect death on her behalf. God loved her because Jesus was gracious enough to give her his righteousness. But when it boils down to her, God never loved her apart from Jesus. And instinctively, right, again, it sounds right. Ever think about it for a moment. When Jesus lived, died, and rose again for you, it wasn't to stronghold God's arm, to bend it behind his back, and to demand from him, God, look what I've done. Would you finally love your people now? No, it's, it's the simple truth that we so easily forget. It's because God the Father loved the world. He loved you and me that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. We have to get the order correct. God loves and then he sent. Jesus doesn't force God to love you. But Jesus allows God to love you fully and freely. And brothers and sisters, maybe you don't struggle with calling God Heavenly Father. Do you... Do you have trouble believing God is your heavenly Father? That your prayers not only have meaning because of what Christ has already accomplished, because, but because you've been adopted into the household of God. And it's not just you who has received this privilege of adoption. When we look at the Lord's Prayer, we see that He isn't my Father. God is our Father in heaven. Therefore, how you address God, it doesn't just affect your boldness to approach him in prayer, but it affects the broadness of your prayers as well. You see, when we begin our prayers with our Father in heaven, we're confessing that our prayers will go beyond just ourselves, our families, our friend groups, our church or community groups. Instead, it will include this weighty reminder, this is our Father's world. And he's seeking to fill his household with his children. And doesn't that just direct the focus of our prayers? Right there, there's a functional application to our faith as well. Not only are we praying more broadly, we must live more beneficial to our prayers as well. You see, what good does it do when you pray for the world? or a specific individual, that they would come to know our Heavenly Father when your lifestyle seems to suggest that you hardly know Him at all. This is why we also pray about God's holy character as we confess, hallowed be your name. Not just that our Heavenly Father would be seen as holy in our prayers, but that He would truly be treated as holy in our lives and to the rest of creation as well. And naturally, this is expressed, it's applied even more in our second heading. As we turn from the C to the P of our CPR, 
How does prayer breathe life into God's plan? Well, would you look with me to verse 10? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, prayer, it serves as both a sober and powerful reminder of who we pray to, of who we worship, which in turn transforms how we worship. This is how God's character breeds life into our prayers. And the same, it's true of God's plan as well. As we move from who God is to what God desires, his what becomes our want. After all, this is how God's plan breeds life into our prayers. You see, verse 10, it shows us God's kingdom, God's will, and God's timing. And hopefully it will make more sense as we move through them. First, right, your kingdom come. It's here we have to ask ourselves a very simple but probing question. Who really runs this kingdom that I call life? You see, when we pray the words, your kingdom come, it's actually a reordering of our lives according to the proper king. It's for this reason when we look to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 26, how does God execute the office of a king? Well, it states Christ. He executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. But if you listen carefully, there's a reason that the answer starts with subduing us to himself. You see, whether it's the Westminster divine several hundred years ago, the Lord's Prayer 2,000 years ago, or the Garden of Eden in the very beginning, there's a sobering reminder that God's creatures were capable of rebellion. And of course, that's true of you and me today. We not only fight against God's kingdom, oftentimes we fight against each other for wrong reasons, and we choose to die on the wrong hills. And why does that happen? It's because instead of believing in the kingdom first, we choose to protect our own tribes. You see, our natural tendency is to look for what distinguishes us from one another and to squabble over those differences, those desires. But the cure, it's equally simple. When's the last time you prayed to God? Better yet, when's the last time before you brought up your problems, you addressed God's position as king? And of course, this cure it doesn't take effect immediately. It's a vitamin that we need to consume on a regular basis, a consistent basis. And the result is that the rest of our prayers are actually transformed. You see, there's a reason that the people, right, there's, there's a reason that the people who frustrate me most, they're the ones I pray most for. You see, it's impossible to pray to God, asking him to pour out his blessings on those you struggle with, and then when it comes to your actual life, not doing anything to work out those relationships. You see, for me, I actually get angry, frustrated when it happens because it feels like I'm wasting my time. If I choose to spend such a long time regularly praying for someone, I want there to be a restoration in our relationship. And I'm going to do everything humanly possible as I continue to pray to God. After all, when it comes to putting people on a hit list, it's our prayer list that we're putting them on. 
And this continues in our second, right? Your will be done. This transforms not just who we live for and how we live amongst fellow subjects of the king. We now confess that our king's rule, it's good. It's righteous. In other words, whereas your kingdom come, it forces us to wrestle with our allegiance. Your will be done. It forces us to wrestle with our obedience. After all, God's kingdom, it teaches us the destination, yes, but it's God's will which requires us to trust his pathways. Like a sheep that follows their shepherd, we trust that God is leading us to those green pastures, his kingdom. But we practice trust when we follow him to even the shadows of the valley of death. And this is perhaps the hardest confession to make as a Christian, to trust God when his will seems to be invisible, unintelligible, or even dangerous. But the more we confess this in prayer, although it may not make it easier to trust God in the moment, what it does do is it makes us quicker to be reminded of this truth, to remind ourselves of this truth. Not only that, it's a confession that makes us test ourselves as we pray, every time we pray. Do I really trust what I'm saying? Or am I just using language that is expected of me? Do I really trust your will be done? Or do I just confess it because it sounds nice? That's something we have to wrestle with every time that we pray. And then the third thing, it's, it's equally related. On earth as it is in heaven. You see, we're transferring, transitioning from asking ourselves, who is the king of our life? To what will my obedience to him look like? And now to that important question, how long am I willing to wait for him? You see, in this section, we recognize there is a discrepancy, there's a difference between earth and heaven. We want the heavenly realities to become an earthly reality. And how does that happen? Yes, with the coming of the kingdom and the fulfillment of God's will, the only question left then is, are you willing to wait for that process? We know that the kingdom is coming. We know for sure God's will will be fulfilled. But how are we waiting for that process? You see, it's like C.S. Lewis's illustration of this ignorant child who's satisfied making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a vacation out in sea? You see, like, likewise, we're just so too easily satisfied with little pleasures, little things, that we don't actually struggle to long for the infinite joy which God truly offers. In other words, we're far too easily satisfied to know how to wait. And therefore, prayer it reminds us, it teaches us to wait on the promises of God. After all, all of God's promises, all of God's answers in every prayer is just one of three ways. The, God answers every prayer in one of three ways, whether or not we're willing to accept those answers. Right? He'll always answer either yes, no, or wait. And this is actually the benefit of having either a prayer notebook or praying on a regular basis. 
You see, if you pray for the same things over and over and over again, you start not only to see God's answer, right? Yes, no, wait. You begin to learn how to trust those answers to be good. And it only helps when you're able to look back and see God's faithfulness recorded. After all, that's what the Bible is. It's a recording of God's faithfulness to the saints in the past to help nourish the faith of God's saints today and certainly the ones to come tomorrow. And with that, let me just turn to our final heading, the R of our CPR. How does prayer breathe life into our response in verses 11 through 13? Starting in verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You see, after recognizing God's character, God's plans, we transition now into his, our request. But I hope that you'll see that what we believe about God, it actually transforms what we ask from God. After all, praying to God, it reveals more of God to us. In fact, what Jesus asks us to pray for, doesn't it actually reveal God's loving heart? You see, our Heavenly Father, He knows that we need bread. He knows that we need forgiveness. And He knows that we need protection. After all, why would we be told to ask for these three specific requests if it wasn't already in the mind and heart of God Himself? What that means is that praying for these three requests, they do more than reveal God's heart. They affect our relationships, our lifestyles as well. And let me show that to us through the different requests. The first request we see in verse 11, right? Give us this day our daily bread. In many ways, this may sound like the least substantial or the most obvious one for us. After all, for many of us, we don't need to ask God to give us daily bread because daily bread is a given. But of course, if we think like that, we'd miss the heart of this request. If we limit ourselves to just asking for bread, and I'm not talking about just simply asking God for a variety of food either. There's another prayer in the Old Testament that actually captures the heart of verse 11. You see, it's found in Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 9. Let me read this prayer for you. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not for me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. And here it is. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. That is, give us this day our daily bread. And why does he pray this way? Well, he says, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of thy God. In other words, verse 11, it says less about food and more about you and me and our faith. You see, God gives us this day our daily bread because if you give me too much, I'm going to forget you. We pray, God, give me this daily bread because we know if you give me too little, I'll dishonor you. We need to recognize that our posture in asking and receiving bread it testifies to those around us of our trust in our Heavenly Father. 
Certainly he will not give us stones or scorpions when we ask him for bread. For bread. And if we take the principle of another bread, a heavenly bread that we find in Exodus, you see, every person in a family that collected the same amount of heavenly bread, however, it sustained every family, the entire family, each and every person. And you have to assume, right, yes, there must be something different about the manna. It's of divine quality so that even the youngest to the oldest to the strongest to the weakest are all sufficiently full. But there's also an aspect in which everyone needs a little different amounts of food. And it's only in a community of bread requesters and receivers that there can be more than enough bread to pass around. In other words, this is not just an individual request for bread. This is a community request for sustenance. Even if that means some will receive more so that they can learn how to give that others will receive less so they learn how to receive until the day the situations are reversed. God is teaching us how to give and receive, not just by asking for my daily bread, but our daily bread. And let me turn us to our second request in verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. You see, God, he doesn't just realize our physical needs. He realizes our spiritual needs as well. But of course, let's not limit this to just the spiritual aspects of being forgiven our sins and learning to forgive one another's sins. You see, this request, it refers to any situation where another individual is at your mercy. Whether that's financial, and you need to choose between money, possessions, anything really over a person. But it could also be an emotional debt that needs to be repaid. Have you ever had someone apologize to you, but you weren't ready to receive or accept it? Or you hold it over them for a long time, always bringing it up whenever you need to equal the tallies. Or perhaps you've experienced it as well. You see, that's a debt that you need to learn to let go of, to forgive, and to choose to forget. You see, when we live in these ways, when we live not forgiving debts, whatever those debts may be, we actually begin to question God's character as well. We begin to suspect that God's grace, because we know free gifts, they're just so hard to come by, let alone receive. You see, when we desire to be peacemakers, we experience genuine peace in our prayers as well. When we learn to forgive others, when God says, I forgive you, we really believe that he does because he's let me, he's transformed me to forgive as well. He's transformed another person. And if my God can do that, surely that is a God who can forgive. And then our final request in verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's not that God leads us into temptation if we don't pray this. After all, right, James 1.13, it teaches us, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. You see, then this prayer, it must have a different function. It's not to remind God he needs to clear out our pathways. Rather, it's to remind ourselves 
Apart from God, there's no way to overcome the temptations, the evils of this life. This is the prayer that the Apostle Paul learned when he prayed to God, remove the storm from my side. Three times he prayed this. Do you remember God's answer? But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And how did Paul respond? Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Why? For when I am weak, then I am strong in God. And the temptation and evil here, it's not simply limited to the evil one. Although it certainly does not exclude Satan. Instead, it refers to all the sufferings, all the miseries of this life, whether it's small or whether it's great, whether it's slander or sickness, it's headaches or heartaches, it's criticism or cancer. All of these and more are within the scopes of human misery and anguish that we're able to go to God, to bring to God in this prayer. And you know how this request reveals his heart for us? It reminds us once more to look towards his kingdom, his heavenly kingdom, which God desires to establish here on earth when he returns and makes all things new. And you know how we can be so sure, so confident of that future reality? Well, it's because when we pray, God doesn't just speak his words to answer us. He already sent his word down to us. You see, when we look at the Lord's prayer, that the the prayer that the Lord Jesus taught his disciples. They weren't just words that he prayed or thought about. These were words that he experienced on earth himself. Right? Because Jesus would come down to earth. Therefore, our prayers can reach our Father's ears in heaven. Because Jesus truly believed, hallowed be your name. That is, because Jesus believed in God's holiness and what it demands, Jesus knew what the cost what the cost was when he would pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because Jesus knew what it meant to starve in the wilderness for 40 days and night. Although he had the power to sustain his own daily bread, although he was tempted to turn stone into bread, Jesus knew that he could not because he wanted you to experience bread instead. And of course, Jesus, he knew what it meant to forgive better than anyone. As he hung upon that cross, crying out to his father forgiveness, not for himself, but for the very ones who crucified him on that cursed tree, as he became sin who knew no sin. And of course, Jesus, he confronted Satan's three temptations in the wilderness. But beyond that, Jesus experienced the greatest temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane. If Satan appeared to Jesus after he was weak and starving in the wilderness for merely 40 days and night, be certain that Satan was there and he would try and whisper sweet temptations into our Lord's ears in that garden. You see, the garden, it was an intensified period of temptation for Jesus. Matthew shares that Jesus, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. 
to the point of even sharing that with his disciples. He told them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Isn't it ironic that the Lord of life and joy, in that moment, he felt sorrow to the point of death. How does Luke describe it? He describes this Jesus being in agony and his sweat becoming like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And you can imagine Satan whispering to Jesus' ears, you don't have to go through this. In fact, it wouldn't be sinful if you just stop here. But Jesus, he does the very thing that he taught you and me. Jesus prays in the garden three times. And if we look at the synoptic gospels, that's Luke, Matthew, Mark, we see three different versions of that prayer. And when you put them all together, there's actually a progression, an interesting one that's revealed. Right? When we look to Luke, Jesus prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Now what father, let alone our heavenly father, wouldn't be willing when he hears his beloved son plead with him, deliver me from evil. And yet before his father needs to show that he's willing, Jesus continues his prayer. He says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus prays again in Matthew, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Again, what father wouldn't do whatever was in his power to save his beloved son, let alone the God who is able, right? El Shaddai, the all-powerful one, when his son pleads with him, deliver me from evil. But before his father needs to show that he's able, Jesus continues his prayer. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And of course, Jesus prays a third time in Mark, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. This is the most intimate and confident of the three prayers. You see, Jesus calls out to God as Father, not only in Hebrew, but in Greek as well. And then what does he do next? He confidently declares, all things are possible for you. But again, Jesus, he doesn't need to wait for an answer as he continues his prayer, yet not what I will, but what you will. You see, Jesus, the very Son of God, he learned through prayer the same thing that you and I need to learn through the practice of praying. It's obedience. After all, the author of Hebrews teaches us, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son he learned obedience through what he suffered. Right? Why is obedience so important for us to learn? Because when we look to the relationship of Jesus with his Father and his obedience, you see, the obedience of the Son, it comes from actually trusting in his Father. Jesus obeyed because his, he could trust his Father. And this is why Jesus taught us the Lord's Prayer before he teaches us how to pray like him in the garden. Because he knows that we need to realize that prayer is important for us to learn obedience, yes, but to learn how to trust in our Father. After all, Jesus obeyed perfectly so that despite our imperfections, through prayer, we could grow in our obedience to our Heavenly Father. 
as we are made more like the Son through our prayers. You see, Jesus endured the cross so that we can trust in our Heavenly Father in any and all circumstances. So brothers and sisters, the remaining question is this, why wouldn't we pray then? What drawbacks are there? What is more important than that relationship to foster it, to trust in him day in, in and day out until our faith becomes sight? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that you are faithful far beyond even what we can actually say with our lips. And we trust that what you did for the Lord Jesus, you will do far more abundantly for us. For if you did not spare your own son, but gave him up for us all, surely you will also with him graciously give us all things. That we can cry out in our prayers and expect answers, because on the cross, you turned your face away. Because Jesus took the sting of sin and death, all the miseries of this life, he can pray on our behalf. We can trust him that he has our good intentions. Lord, would you help us then to be a prayerful people, to know what it means to trust in you as we practice prayer day in, day out, not only by ourselves, but in community, with brothers and sisters, friends, children, family, whoever it may be, until the whole world will speak in one voice, until the day that we will worship as one people. Lord, be with us and teach us how to pray like the Lord Jesus. In the strong name of Christ we pray. Amen.